355. Créativité. Podcast de Chanel. Créativité. Creativity. Chanel à l'Opéra. Chanel à l'Opéra. Welcome to 355 Creativity Sessions, Chanel at the Opera. I am Virginie Mouza, journalist and writer, and today I will be your host for the new podcast series. For the second year, the House of Chanel is the patron of the new season's gala opening night of the National Opera of Paris, celebrating its very strong relationship with the ballet world. Its founder, Gabrielle Chanel herself, was in her time a very active support of the Parisian avant-garde artistic scene. During these interviews, we are going to talk with some of the most brilliant creative people in the ballet and opera field, stage directors, choreographers, ballet dancers, opera singers. Together, we'll speak about the Garnier Opera House, of course, but also with each of them about their relationship with their art, their creativity, their achievement. Creativity. My guest today is one of the most brilliant dancers in the world. She is danseuse étoile, as we say in French, the absolute top rank of the best dancers trained by the Opéra de Paris School. As you may know, there are very few of them. This one has been awarded étoile on stage right after the finale of Swan's Lake on December 31st, 2016 by Aurélie Dupont, head of the dance here. For the new season opening night, she will dance Serge Liffard Ballet Variation. Bonjour, Léonore Bolac. We are here in your house in Opéra de Paris, which is actually your home. Non, c'est une maison magnifique dont It's on a beautiful de, home de that never ceases to amaze and move us. This part of the house is particularly golden. <laughs> We are here in the grand foyer of the opera. Oui, tout à fait. Absolutely. La the artist's quarters are more modest, modest, so to speak. Si Mais, euh, elle est chaleureuse But et, it's very euh, warm and everybody feels at home. What did it do to you the first time you discovered this magic place? How old were you? Alors, Suis allée, euh, en tant que so I came here for the first time as a spectator when I was quite young, seven or eight years old. I came to see Sleeping Beauty, but I especially remember the first time I stood on stage when I was 15. It was a real dream that I'd had time to see grow, because when you're 15, you start to know a little more of what you want. So I'd been admitted to the opera ballet school at that age, which is a bit later than most of my colleagues, and I found myself on stage, and from there we could see the room and the ceiling of the painter Chagall, which is absolutely gorgeous, and I remember being fascinated. I was speechless. In a few days, you will be on that stage again to perform Les Variations from Serge Liffard, which costumes have been created by the House of Chanel. I have a question. Chanel is an haute couture house. How does an haute couture house adapt to dance, to your body, and technical requirements? 
Can you tell us about the fittings? It's probably another type of challenge for an haute couture house, because as you said, we dancers have several constraints. The weight of the costume, for instance, is an important element, as it is a dress that has many layers of tulle and frills for aesthetic reasons. But we must be able to turn, dance, jump with it, and so it has to be as light as possible. So we negotiated the number of layers of tulle and so on. During the first fittings, we were worried about being limited in the scope of specific movements. We also have aesthetic criteria such as our feet, for instance. They must be highlighted while dancing, so the color of the points was negotiated too. Let's talk about foresight. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Blake Works One and the collaboration with the choreographer William Forsythe, who's a major figure in the world of modern dance. Did it make you reconsider certain basics from classical dance? I think that in Blake Works One, William Forsythe's intention was to pay tribute to classical dance. He returned to ideas that were far more classical than anything he'd done in the past few years with other companies, including here at the Opera with Past Parts, for example. Then he was a lot more modern in the approach, but in this case, it was really a homage to our school. He watched a lot of old footage, worked with us, using these references. What would Sleeping Beauty do at that moment? There, you are Myrta and Giselle, and so on. He made a lot of references to our classics. I'd worked with him before, so I was familiar with his approach. It wasn't new, but it's always an immense privilege to work with a choreographer like him, because he's extremely positive and knows how to get the best out of people as individuals. He's fantastic and really pushes people beyond their limits without fear of being ridiculous. He really makes us feel very confident. Does it require any specific technical skills to dance foresight? It does. I think it requires a strong ability for movement amplitude combined with great speed to execute them, which isn't easy. There was a dancer who, if I may, used to be her, his favorite, Sylvie Guillem. How does it feel for you to dance in her footsteps? I think William Forsyth manages to make us feel unique and to not feel like we're in anyone's footsteps. To be in Sylvie Gillam's footsteps is intimidating and I'm glad it's not what I have in mind when I dance. What kind of roles do you usually enjoy dancing? I especially like roles that have a strong narrative dimension. When dance blends with theater, I really love that. I find it fascinating. I feel that what I like as an audience member is to be carried to different worlds. So great dramatic ballets such as Roe and Juliet or The Lady of the Camellias are the type of ballets I particularly enjoy dancing and watching. Do these parts that require a dramatic dimension leave you any space for improvisation? I wouldn't say improvisation, but spontaneity, probably. Everything is written and each movement is codified, but we're able to play with the emotions of the day along with what your partner gives you. This is also what I love most in dance, dancing with a partner and telling the story together. When you allow yourself to be surprised by a look and intention that was different or more moving and sense of urgency or a failure that will trigger something unique and touching, That's what I prefer. You were mentioning dancing partners. Germain Louvet, who's also a danseur étoile at the opera, is one of your recurring partners. He says about you, Léonore is a bright flame, very solid, 
who is not afraid to use her weaknesses for a part. What weaknesses is referring to? Could you explain? I think that self-doubt is something inherent to being an artist. We have to question ourselves to move forward. But let's say that sometimes, especially on stage, it's best not to doubt oneself. I suppose that for some parts, I allow myself to access this inner fragility. How do you negotiate with, with the nerves? What are your ideal creative conditions to stay focused and to not literally get cold feet. First of all, it's about training. So it's something I'm learning progressively. I would say that today I more or less managed to deal with stage fright, which is crucial. For a role that makes me nervous, which is most roles, I'll be nervous all day long and during the preparation. But once on stage, I managed to place myself in the right mindset through mental preparatory work prior to performing. I breathe, I tell myself I've worked enough, that I'm good to go, and also to enjoy enjoy myself. When stage fright hits me, I tell myself that my little 10-year-old in me dreamed of doing this and that I'm doing it now. It's an immense privilege and I tell myself I might as well enjoy it. Also, I know that when I dance and I'm stressed, I dance less well, so I refuse to allow my nerves to get to me. It's very cute how you say little 10 years old myself. So let's talk to this little 10 years old girl. Before you were 10 years old, Your desire to become a ballerina was already very strong. When did it start? In my case, I've always loved to dance. I started dancing when I was four. I would dance in my living room, put on CDs of Chopin's Nocturnes or Brahms Hungarian dancing. And I danced at home. But I decided to really become a dancer around 10, 11 years old because a teacher noticed me and told me it could be an actual job and that I had the right qualities for it. So from then onwards, I wanted to do it for a living and become a ballerina. Before that, I had a more innocent relationship to dance. It's just what I did to express myself at home. Was it an obvious vocation? I'm asking this because we know how difficult this path is and only few of you actually make it. Has the learning process been painful from 10 years old to today? Was it filled with doubts or did it hold victories or both? How did it go for you? Of course, it's been full of doubts, failures, rejections, and obstacles. But I think this is something everyone experiences at some point in their career. In my case, I faced an incredible amount of obstacles at the beginning. I had a bit of a difficult start as I decided quite late to undertake this, and I hadn't had good training when I was eight or nine years old. I didn't get accepted at the École de Danse when I was little, so I went through the National Conservatory of Paris before entering the École de Danse. I got into the company when I was 18 years old, and during five years I remained in the first rank quadrille in the corps de ballet, simply because I wasn't performing well enough during the promotion exams. It's a really tough and unrewarding rank, as we don't get to be on stage a lot. We mostly stand in for others, so it's a lot of work to mainly stay in the wings. And once you do go on stage to stand in for someone, you're working as an understudy, so the work conditions are very comfortable. I had a lot of doubts back then, not about being a dancer, I knew that's what I wanted, but rather wondering if my place was at the opera in this house, since I couldn't evolve in it. So those were the obstacles. Afterwards, however, everything happened really quickly. Once I got promoted to the second rank, the Corée that only lasted a year, and then I was promoted every year until I was named Etoile after four years. In short, I spent five years in the Corps de Ballet, and it then took me four years before I became an Etoile. So 
You were made étoile on the 31st of December 2016 by Aurélie Dupont on stage at the end of Swan's Lake. What happens at that moment in your mind and in your heart? How does it go? It's such a special, particular moment. It's difficult to describe, but first of all, you must know that I had just danced one leg for the first time, which is an extremely challenging and demanding ballet. And so I was both filled with exhaustion and joy to have it made it until the end, even before the announcement. Then when it happened, it felt blurry, and I remember thinking, are you sure? And at the same time, I was aware it was happening, what I had always dreamed of, and I was telling myself what to do, enjoy the moment, walk on take a bow. Otherwise, I was just petrified and feeling silly. And then you cry. It's a Miss France kind of moment. It's indescribable. But it took me such a long time to realize that it happened, that during three months, I dreamed that it wasn't for real and that I had to take one more little exam. At this moment, when you're made étoile on stage, the 31st December 2016, does it feel like an end or... A beginning. It's the accomplishment of a dream in of itself, I can't deny. It's something I've always dreamed about, and to see such a big dream come true is quite special. But then, it's also the beginning of so much more work and more doubts. They definitely don't disappear. Because we now have a title to honor, a big crown to wear every day. To feel worthy of it isn't easy every day, and so it's once again a lot of work. When does a career stop for Danseuse Étoile? The official limit is 42 years old and it's the same for every dancer in the company. But then some Étoiles carry on with their careers independently from the opera. And in your case, how do you wish to pursue this path, which has been a forceful learning process, we may say? Would you like to pass on something of what you've learned afterwards? Well, it's pretty recent, but I think that I'd like that. It's a vocation that appeared very recently. I had the opportunity to teach a little bit in Kenya with an association. Could you tell us more? I believe this association is called What Dance Can Do Project, and you went to teach children how to dance, right? It was in Kibera, in a slum of Nairobi, where children live in tough conditions, but to see them blossom through their joy of dancing made me want to teach, especially people who can't easily access dance. So, uh, do you see yourself being a dance teacher later, somewhere in France, or, or even here, in your home? I think I'd rather export dance everywhere in the world, and, if possible, bring this joy of dance to more complicated places. What do you mean by less favored environments? Less favored, yes. How would you say your loved ones, your friends and family... Uh, reacted to the fact that by becoming a danseuse étoile, you joined an elite. Do they look at you differently? I wouldn't say that they do in my close family. They're proud of me, of course. There's more of a shift with my distant relatives, people we didn't hear too much about that suddenly took an interest. They maybe thought dance was more of a hobby for me and have started to realize it was a bit more serious. You're still a young woman, a very young woman, very pretty, How do you reconcile the life of this young woman, the young woman you are, with this existence here 
which is all about discipline and focus, you're a little bit disconnected from the real world outside. How, how do you deal with that? Well, I've always lived this way, so I don't really have another reference. Even if it's an odd life, it feels normal to me. I managed to make it work by having some contact with the outside. It's definitely not easy. It's actually a lot of work maintaining relationships on the outside simply because we lack time and energy. But my boyfriend isn't a dancer, so there you go. It's my anchor to the outside world. And he says I'm going to Hogwarts in the morning, which is pretty much it. Do you dance anywhere else than on stage? Not so much. I don't really go clubbing, for example. I used to, but again, I don't have enough time and energy now to do this at night on top of everything else. Do you daydream? Do you have time for that? On which music do you daydream? Well, first of all, I'm actually very lucky because I'm constantly surrounded by beautiful live music every day. So that's a really incredible privilege. And when I'm home, I mostly listen to jazz. I used to listen to a lot of classical music, but now I think I get enough of it, so I listen to jazz. Which hero dead or alive would you like to meet? I'd like to meet Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I've read several of her books and I like them a lot. Why would you like to meet her? To talk with her, to know what her stances are regarding current matters that preoccupy me. She seems like an extremely intelligent person who could shed some light on these issues. And I'd love to meet Michelle Obama as well. Of course. According to you, what big accomplishment do you still have to achieve for your career to be absolutely complete? I think I would very much like to be the lucky star that many people were to me during my life path. If I could change the life of people as much as they did mine, it would be a beautiful achievement. What is your current state of mind today? It's very fragmented during the day as I'm rehearsing three very different ballets at the same time, so I'm close to schizophrenia. I try to take things one at a time to get through the day. Merci beaucoup, Leonor Molag. Merci à vous. Merci. Au revoir. Au revoir. Creativity.